John's Gospel, starting chapter 7. I entitled this, The Faithful Church, Bearing Witness to Both the Good News of the Gospel and the Bad News of the World. I'm reading John chapter 7, starting chapter 7 today, the first 13 verses. Hope you have a Bible somewhere along the way to have your own follow along. John 7, 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. John adds, for not even his brothers believed in him. Just think about that for a minute. His brothers. What did they think? He was a little off his rocker, delusional. They didn't believe in him. Six. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. The world hates Jesus. That's not a speculative comment. It's what Jesus said about himself. It hates me because I testify about it. Its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. It's a strange conversation. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering. Isn't that a great word? Muttering. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So today we're kicking off chapter 7. There are 21 chapters in John's account. So you do the math. We're about a third of the way through. But that's deceptive. It's really deceptive because though only concluding six chapters of this gospel, we're now entering with chapter 7, okay? We're entering now the last six months of Jesus' life. That's the chunk of material John wants to give to the end of Jesus and his life on earth. So even as we start chapter 7, we're looking at the beginning of the end for our Lord. Some of the details John includes are meant to trigger us in that direction. For example, John tells us in verse 2 that the Feast of Booths was at hand. That feast was one of three compulsory feasts for the Jewish observance. The Feast of Booths was celebrated in the fall, relatively close to what we would call October, and it was celebrated at the fall harvest, reminding 
these people of God's faithfulness for the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, God fed them. And so the Feast of Booths came from that. People would construct little booths, tents from branches frequently on the rooftop of their houses. They would dwell in those temporary booths as a reminder of the kind of dwellings they had when they wandered through the wilderness. That's what that was all about. The feast right after that was Passover, celebrated in the spring. And so John is cluing us in that six months from the Feast of Booths in chapter 7, Jesus will be executed at the Passover in the same city. Our Lord hasn't much time left, and he knows it. And we're going to go into a bit of detail about that in just a minute. Another point, maybe by way of background, the next few chapters of John's account are marked by this air of tension, conflict, with the exception of just a few, just a few brighter breaks. These chapters are a constant back and forth in confrontation. There's the repetition of attack and defense, belief exposing unbelief, And even if you didn't know the whole story of Jesus, even if you didn't understand it all, you would read this and think there's something brewing. There's some kind of a storm on the horizon. It's getting dark in John's gospel. We need to think about that. We need to think about that. The the whole gospel record reminds us, us, that it's not always an easy thing to follow Jesus. I was thinking about that as I was working on this. This, The world for the Christian today is nothing at all like it was in the 80s and 90s when the whole born-again thing, and it it was just a very popular thing to be a born again Christian and following Jesus. And the 30 years, 35 years have changed everything. It's far less popular to seriously follow Jesus than it was just a generation ago. Far less popular. We need to think about that. Now back to our text. Point number one. Jesus' brothers, his own brothers, they want to bolster Jesus' shrinking number of followers. I like it in verses 1 to 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. Immediately we wonder why John says Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. He tells us this right after Jesus' brothers tell Jesus to go ahead to Judea and work some miracles. That's what they're saying. See the works. Go to Judea, work some miracles. I mean, surely that implies some kind of belief in Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, come, work some miracles in Judea. So in a way, yes, there's a kind of belief, but it's belief with twisted motives. Jesus' brothers aren't blind. 
they can see what's been happening to his popularity. For two chapters now, Jesus seems to be losing support. John carefully records this. We're supposed to notice it. First, the crowds start to leave Jesus, 630. Then the leaders want to get rid of Jesus, 641, 42. Then his disciples start leaving him, 664. Now members of his own family, 7-7. So something has to be done to help Jesus. Jesus needs an agent. This is not going well. So his brothers, his brothers call to, to showtime for Jesus. It's based more on enjoying a moment of celebrity status and acclaim than, than having anything directly to do with Jesus and his lowly submission to the Father's will for a broken body and shed blood. Jesus' brothers know people would rally around a winner rather than a loser. So yes, I mean, they kind of believe. It's the sort of belief, though, that Jesus already talked about in 23 to 25 of chapter 2. You remember these words. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, there's the verb, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Look, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. They believed in Jesus. Jesus didn't believe in them. Because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He himself knew what was in man. So, these people in John 2, and the disciples in John 7, I mean, they, do they believe or don't they? Well, they, they think they believe. They, they like Jesus, they admire Jesus, they're pretty pumped up on Jesus when he's multiplying loaves of bread and healing blind people. But Jesus isn't very excited about them. That's the thing. He doesn't equate what they're feeling with genuine belief in himself. These people are success worshipers, miracle worshipers, power worshipers, victory worshipers, but not disciples. Jesus' brothers have a family love for Jesus that doesn't want to see him look like a flop. It's nice. This is belief that misses what Jesus is all about. I mean, and the church, the church needs to, it needs John's reminder about the relationship between true belief in Jesus and embracing his redemptive mission and his work on the cross. So, Real disciples were, are, are not naive about the cost to Jesus and the cost to us as we follow him. They've figured that out, real belief in Jesus. So this text is uh, it's a great motive checker for all of us. Here's the life principle. True belief in Jesus must always be cross centered. Authentic discipleship is always front-loaded with self-denial. Any other basis for attachment to Jesus or just a fascination with his deeds will never be recognized by Jesus 
as real faith. Some lot to think about there. Point number two. Father God reveals the full measure of his redemptive grace in the timing of Jesus' death. Look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus said to them, notice the time words here, okay? My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot, is that too strong? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. You can't miss the way Jesus contrasts. Let's call them these two time zones. His, my time has not yet come, and their time zone. Your time is always here. And the obvious meaning is they can come and go wherever they want, any feast, any celebration. They can go wherever they want, wherever it suits them. It's always the same good time for them. Jesus, on the other hand, well, he's got people waiting to kill him. And this present feast of booths, John doesn't have to mention, but he does. This present feast of booths, it isn't the time for Jesus' death. Why? What's the difference? Because in the Father's divine plan, this is, this is striking to me. In the Father's divine plan, the Son isn't to be slain at the feast of booths. In the Father's plan, the Son is to be slain at the Passover. In fact, in the Father's timing, Jesus will be killed at the precise moment that first Passover lamb was slain so long ago, at exactly the same time. What's God doing? The divine timing is a graciously planned Revelation, so people will have an easier time seeing Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not at the Feast of Booths, at Passover. When that first Passover lamb is slain, that's when Jesus has to die, right at the same time. So people will go, oh, that's the connection. The Lamb of God shedding his blood so the Father's wrath passes over those in Christ, just as the first Passover lamb caused divine judgment to pass over those that had the blood on the doorposts. You know the story. We're, we're, we're supposed to see Jesus in that. That's the timing of his death. The Father's timing has these events coordinated to make the message of the atonement more obvious to the masses in Jerusalem. Think about it. The Father stages history to keep people from missing the meaning of the death of Jesus on the cross. Point number three. Presenting the good news of the gospel requires presenting the bad news of the world. There's two things going on, and they're both important. Jesus said to them, 
My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. I want to look at that. But it hates me. I want to look at that. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to, see, this feast. For my time has not fully come. You can see from the text. These words are closely related to Jesus' words about the two time zones. His brothers aren't believers at this point. We know that from 7-5. Not even his brothers believed in him. So we're not guessing. His brothers aren't believers at this time. And in the very next verse, Jesus reveals the effect of their unbelief. That's in verse 6. Your time is always here. You're not believers, verse 5. Your time is always here, verse 6. We're meant to see those things connected. Here's what Jesus means. Because they don't believe in Jesus, they don't face any inconvenience in terms of being out of sync with the world around them. They fit in. Your time is always here. If you don't believe, verse 5, your time is always here, verse 6. You can do whatever you want. They are, they are in the same time zone as the culture around them. They fit in. That's what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus makes himself even more clear by saying something stunning in the very next verse, that they're all linked together. Verse 7, the world, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So, so it's not just that the world does not hate Jesus' brothers. Jesus, he takes it a step further. He says the world, the world cannot hate them. It is impossible possible for the world to hate them because it would be hating itself. Our world embraces its own. That's what Jesus is saying. Our world embraces its own system. It cannot contradict its own self-love. The whole world is immersed in its own value system and it never abandons it. Unbelievers fit perfect, perfectly. The world's self-embrace is always consistent and it's all permeating. It controls every movie, every sitcom. It's in this world's fashions. It dominates its novels, its blogs, its philosophies, its values. The world always loves itself. The world is always true to itself. It tolerates no rivals. We, we need to hear Jesus' words at this point because he points to his own unbelieving brothers. That couldn't have been easy for Jesus. Points to his own unbelieving brothers and says flat out that there's nothing about their lives or their words that is sufficiently out of sync with this world to even remotely provoke the world's displeasure. 
It can't hate them. That's what Jesus said. The punchline of this observation is unlike many in the contemporary church, did, Jesus didn't see this harmony with the world as a good thing. There's disappointment in Jesus' voice. So here it is in a nutshell. Let me try one more time at this. The world was free to be itself in the presence of Jesus' brothers in a way that it wasn't free to be itself in the presence of Jesus. Did, did I make that clear? The world was free to be itself in the presence of unbelievers in a way that it wasn't free to be itself in the presence of Jesus. Jesus has got to go. It's not the brothers that have to go. Jesus has to go. Now it all starts to fit together. Of course, they can go up to the festival anytime they want. Not Jesus. They're waiting to kill Jesus. Why are they waiting to kill Jesus? Right there. They want to kill Jesus because they, they hate Jesus. Why do they hate Jesus? He testifies that, well, it's evil, full of sin. And they don't like hearing that. People still don't like hearing that. All this goes back to the first point, if you remember it, in today's teaching, where we examine the, the kind of phony belief of Jesus' brothers. How easy it is for them to say, Come on, Jesus, let's go up to the feast. Come to Jerusalem. Make some miracle bread. Find some lame people to heal. Raise the dust a bit. Crowds will love it. That's what they're saying. And it's also easy for them to say because they don't have a clue about why the crowds hate Jesus and why they want to kill Jesus. They don't get it. For why is our world so structured against the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ? And I'm on my last point, so take heart. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Do you think the world still hates Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. It hasn't changed a bit. It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. So you can see the mixed opinions. Verse 13 says people were guarded in being outspoken in their views of Jesus because it says, for fear of the Jews. That's right there. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. Jews here means the religious leading Jews, the religious leadership. We know that because the people who were afraid, they were Jews too but not in the same authoritative group. These leaders, these Jewish leaders, wanted to kill Jesus. The best review Jesus gets from the crowd is they say he's a pretty good, here, there. That's the best they can say. He's a good guy. That's it. So the people in power hate Jesus. 
the Jewish religious representatives, they want to kill him. And now we wrap up with this question, why? And the answer to the why does the world hate Jesus question comes on two levels. It's important to see this. One level is on the surface. The other one is deep. They're both true, but one isn't as important. On the surface, we know some of the reasons because the New Testament tells us why they hated him. Um, he healed on the Sabbath, 516. Um, he was guilty of blasphemy, John 518. Who can forgive sins but God? So healing on the Sabbath, some of the things he said they didn't like. Those are the surface reasons. They're there, but they're just on the surface. But they aren't the deep reasons. They were ready and useful excuses for hating Jesus. They're the ones that people used. But the striking issue to me is when Jesus has a chance himself to tell us why the world, including those Jews, why they hated him, those aren't the reasons. Jesus doesn't say because I healed on the Sabbath or because I forgave sins. tells us. Here's why they want to kill me. Jesus says. When they're around me, they see the sin in their hearts. And they hate that. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I I, here's this word, I testify. I testify about it. Jesus, God the Son, who never lies, says he gives testimony. It's kind of an official word, a declaration, like a witness on a witness stand. He declares the sins this world doesn't want exposed. He declares things sinful that the world embraces in its value system. Can you think of examples of that? And Jesus says, there, that's why they hate me. That's why they hate me. I expose the things in their heart that they want to keep secret. So, remember, this gets real close to home for all of us in this room. If you reject Jesus today, if you reject Jesus today, it isn't because faith in him as God the Son lacks evidence. There's plenty of evidence. That's not why you reject Jesus. And if you reject Jesus today, it's not because the church is full of hypocrites. Look, there's still room. And if you reject Jesus today, it's not because of the innocent people killed by the Roman Catholic Church and the Spanish Inquisition. That's not why you reject Jesus either. The world's been full of corrupt things like that. No, if you reject Jesus today, it's for the very same reason. It's because you don't want to say, I'm a sinner. You know what's wrong with the world? I am. And I need God's grace and I got. God's forgiveness, and it only comes through the Lamb of God executed on Passover who takes away the sin of the world. 
So finally, find freedom by finding honesty. Find freedom and joy by coming clean. Find the inward lightness of soul that comes with humility. Admit your sin. Jesus said that's why people hate him. Overcome that, and you'll find that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray.